Today being Palm Sunday, as Doug told us, I want to turn our attention to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to consider his kingly reign, his kingship, the kingdom of God, or the unveiling of the glory of God through his kingdom and through the various aspects of that kingdom. And so focusing on the king and the kingdom is very much at the center of what the Bible's message is, and I pray it'll be... Uh, that Jesus is king. He started with his genealogical records in chapter 1. Why that? Because it is staff throne on earth. You go to chapter 2, it's the visit of the, the magi, the wise men. They queried Herod, who was the king at that time, of the Sermon on the Mount. The answer is the righteousness of the kingdom, the righteousness of the kingdom. Jesus contrasts superficial righteousness with true righteousness from the heart. And at the end of that sermon, he urges them to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You go on and read chapters 8 through 15 and you see Jesus displaying a plethora of mighty miracles demonstrating the power of the kingdom. When the kingdom comes in all of its power and the earth is transformed, these are the things that we will see. He gives them little tastes of that supernatural power by doing the miracles. And then he teaches about the kingdom. You notice his parables are all about the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on and he teaches the disciples the privileges that they will have in the kingdom. And I like to hear about that because those are our privileges, you see. We get into the fullness of the kingdom. We're there now in a spiritual sense. We don't see it in its full. It kind of gathers up in this chapter, chapter 21 in Matthew. It swells like a mighty wave with Jesus as he ascends the mountain. He goes towards Jerusalem, the city of his ancient father by birth, David. He is indeed the rightful king of the nation of Israel. Now here in chapter 21, we see the king actually entering into the royal city, that ancient city. And he does it to the shouts of Hosanna. Not just the children, by the way, the adults as well. The shouts of Hosanna. This then marks kind of the zenith, the pinnacle of Jesus' public ministry where his popularity is at its greatest height. And yet, he was a king That was greatly misunderstood. People really didn't fellowship with him on that Sunday because they didn't understand him. And so we're going to read chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, and we're going to fellowship with him a little bit and try to understand him this morning. Would you follow along then as I read it? When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there, and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. 
And of course, as the text goes on, it speaks of him entering into the temple and cleansing it out. And he begins a week with miracles and teaching leading up to Good Friday where he is crucified. As was reminded, it was a very eventful week, but it all starts right here. This is one of the most important events in the life of Jesus. So important, it's one of the few events that all four of the gospel writers include in great detail. It meant something, and it meant something very important to the nation of Israel and also to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He enters amid shouts, loud shouts of Hosanna right into the kingly city, Jerusalem. On this day, our Lord would show, though, both tears and great sorrow. He knew what was happening to the city of Jerusalem. He knew the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed. He knew there would be bloodshed. He knew the entire city was going to face just the most horrific time it had ever faced in its long, long history. And he shed tears over this city. So there are also shouts of anger that he has as he enters into the temple. And as we go on to read, we'd see he has holy zeal for his temple and he overturns the tables and he, he throws over the chairs and he drives people out even with a whip and he has holy anger that they've turned his father's house into a robber's den. And so there are a lot of emotions in the Lord Jesus Christ on this very special day. We need to understand them if we're going to fellowship with him and understand our king properly because the people of Israel misunderstood the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not know him. They did not get his prophetic mission. Let's not make that mistake. You know, the future of our world depends not on technology, not on colonizing the planets and the stars, no matter what worldview may be out there. There are a lot of different worldviews. The future of this world does not depend on the progress of democracy. Democracy will fail. The future of this world does not depend on the religion of Islam. The religion of Islam is false and it will fail. The future of this world does not depend on China and they're buying up everything. Um, China will fail. The future of this world does not depend on Russia with all of their nuclear weapons that they boast. The future of this world depends on the nation of Israel and the king of Israel, Jesus from Nazareth. All of the world depends on that. It's amazing, startling that such a small country would control all that happens in the future of this world. And such a rejected king would be the one that controls everything that happens. It is before the king of the Jews that all of the other nations and all of their armies and all of their kings and princes and presidents and prime ministers, it is before this king that they will bow. If you want to know my politics, that's it right there. I'm looking forward to that day. Everything else is going to fail, and that includes our own beloved country. This is a true account from the life of the Lord Jesus that has meaning to it that we are to comprehend. There are three main scenes here in verses 1 through 11 that are going to help us kind of Walk along here with the Lord Jesus Christ and understand him. First, the prophecies about the king. Second, the praise for the king. And then lastly, the puzzlement over the king. The prophecies of the king, praise for the king, and puzzlement over the king. Let's look first at the prophecies in uh, verses 1 through 7, at least the beginning part of verse 7. As this scene opens, Jesus was journeying from Jericho to the east of Jerusalem and heading up, and it was up, all the way to Jerusalem. The distance from Jericho to Jerusalem is about 17 miles, not that far if you're driving, pretty far if you're walking. 
and the ascent and elevation is some 3,000 feet. The terrain is rugged, the wilderness is dry, but there was a Roman road that was built and kind of winded through that area past the little town of Bethany and then on to the Mount of Olives. And from the Mount of Olives, you would gain sight of the city of Jerusalem just slightly below the, uh, the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, or Olivet as it sometimes is called, is right outside of Jerusalem. It can be seen from Jerusalem. Um, the name evidently was derived from the fruitfulness of the olive trees that were in ancient times all over uh, that area. The valley which separates the Mount of Olives from the city of Jerusalem is the famous Kidron Valley. Um, Olivet itself comes to have great significance in Bible prophecy. It is here on the Mount of Olives that later Jesus, according to Acts chapter 1 and verse 12, would actually leave our planet. Where did he take off from? He took off from the Mount of Olives. His feet were there, and then they were lifted up, and he went into the heavens. And he's been there at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in his body until this time. It is also here on the Mount of Olives that Jesus will return to earth. We don't have to guess where he'll come. He's not coming here to Columbia, Maryland. He's going to Jerusalem. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's headed to the Mount of Olives right outside of Jerusalem. And that is where his feet will land. And that is a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4. So the territory around here is all saturated with prophetic significance. And very near both Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives was this little lesser known place called Beth Fage, which means house of unripe figs. I don't know why it has that name. Not much is actually known about this little village, but the traditional site is between Jerusalem and Bethany near the Mount of Olives as well. At this point, Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead of them on a mission. Their mission was to prepare his entrance into Jerusalem. A momentous day like this needed preparation. And so he took two trusted disciples and he said, here's what I want you to do. And they were to acquire this donkey and the colt. The two disciples are unnamed but their mission is named and what they're supposed to do. When we go to the Gospel of Mark, it fills in more of the details. It says there in chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. I kind of find that humorous, you know. Here are these two guys, these two Jewish guys, somewhere in the streets of Jerusalem, right? And they're out in the street doing whatever they're doing, just having a normal day talking to one another. And this guy comes up and unties a, a colt that doesn't even belong to them. And what they, they turn and they say, what are you doing? And now their words are forever in the Bible. <laughs> they're just having a normal day, and their words are now in the Bible. I kind of find that funny. It's like you and I would have said, hey, what are you doing? Leave those things alone. And now, now we have it all recorded. It's a very, very uh, normal kind of a event in one sense, but very abnormal in another sense. Well, Luke 19 and verse 30 notes that this was a cult that was never ridden upon. Never. That is an indication that Jesus knew he was presenting himself as king on this day. For it was for monarchs to have vessels and things such as these that were brand new, that were never used by anybody. The mother donkey was brought along not to be ridden, but to help the little foal cooperate with the mission. Some may wonder, how did the Lord know about the cult and the question that would be asked? And clearly, this was a miracle of Jesus' prescience. Scripture tells us unequivocally that Jesus is God in human flesh. In Colossians 2 and verse 9, it says, all the fullness of deity, get that, all the fullness of deity dwelled in Christ in bodily form. 
This is God walking around in a body. This is the, the person who created the universe walking around in a body with them. Of course he knows what's going on. So he uses, he exercises what he didn't always have to use, but he exercised it here, that prerogative of divine attributes, and he exercises his omniscience. He knew many of the things that were going on. He even organized the events of the day. Our our Lord, if you're going to understand him properly, and though this is going to be a horrific week for him in one sense, he was no victim. He knew exactly what was going on. More than that, he orchestrated the events to be in fulfillment of both his Father's will and what Scripture said. You know, in Revelation 1, it says that Jesus' eyes are described as a flame of fire. What's that supposed to represent? That he sees all and his vision penetrates into everything. And so he knew all of this. He knew what was happening. He knew he was going to betray him. He knew he was going to be crucified. He knew about his burial. He knew about his resurrection. He knew everything. And the Lord knew that this animal owner would release his colt for use that day. And for this little act of service, the owner's colt would become, along with Balaam's donkey, the most famous donkey of all time. This donkey was talked about in the prophecies of Zechariah 500 years beforehand. Pretty important donkey. And this donkey has been talked about 2,000 years after. That's 2,500 years of discussion about an animal. Because even this little detail, as insignificant as it might seem in the scope of world events, was to fulfill prophecy on a very significant day. I want us to keep the finger in Matthew 21 and turn back to the prophet Zechariah and go to chapter uh, 9 and verse 9. Go back to the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, if you would, and go to chapter 9, verse 9. I want to read that for you so you can see this prophecy and understand the import of the day. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. There it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here the prophet predicts a righteous, divine appointment of a king arriving and coming to Jerusalem. And he's going to come in peace and he's going to come in meekness. Sometimes a ruler would come to a city in war to conquer. He was coming in peace and he was coming in humility, in meekness. The Jews themselves, when they studied this passage, they agreed that this was a messianic prophecy. As is true in many of the Old Testament prophet, uh, prophetic passages, if you read what is before this in the verses 8, 7, and backwards that way, and you read what is after, you will see that in, in the Old Testament context, the two comings of the Messiah to Jerusalem are, are woven together, and you cannot tell that they're two comings. You have this warring and conquering Messiah who's going to destroy the nations that have troubled Israel. And then you have this this humble Messiah who's coming to present himself and announce salvation. And then you go back to this warring Messiah who's conquering. And in the Old Testament sense, God didn't reveal how all of that is going to happen. He didn't want the timing known. He kept that to himself. But in retrospective, you're able to see now there's some of the prophecy that was fulfilled literally at the first coming of Jesus. And so we should also expect the prophecy to be filled literally at the second coming of Jesus or portions of it. 
The verses prior to verse 9 speak of a warring Messiah that would conquer other nations when he comes. And so, so does verses 10 and following. But here is this beautiful little humble and gentle king that is sandwiched between all of that war and conquering, and he's coming in that humility to bring salvation to other people. So verse 9 is the part of the prophecy of Zechariah that is fulfilled at Christ's first coming, and then the other parts will be fulfilled at Christ's second coming. Now, a donkey is an animal of peace. A donkey is not a war horse. A donkey is a beast of burden. It's a lowly animal. It was usually not ridden by a king, although here and there it would be ridden by a king, but it would usually be ridden by a priest or by a merchant. And so why is it that the Messiah would ride in on his big day into Jerusalem on a colt? And the answer again, as it's tied together in Zechariah's prophecy, is that Jesus was revealing his humility. He was revealing his heart that was humble. To know the Lord Jesus Christ, to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to understand how humble he truly is. He deserves all of the glory and all of the praise, but he doesn't grab it. He comes lowly, he comes humbly, he comes without pomp and circumstance. If you're going to draw near to the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to know that he wants you to humble your mind. You're not going to get close to the Lord Jesus Christ if you have a a mind that thinks too highly of yourself. You and I, we need to constantly work hard at humbling ourselves that we might know this, this humble king. It's not a great war horse. There's no chariot that he's riding. He didn't choose any of that this day, nor did the father choose that for him. He rides in on a donkey, and he fulfills Scripture, and he reveals his humble heart. And the daughters of Zion that are mentioned in the prophecy as as well were to rejoice in this. Do you see this? The daughters of Zion refers to the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem. Zion is the city's highest and most prominent peak And so that was a common Hebrew way of signifying all of the offspring, the female offspring of Jerusalem. And he's saying, behold, your king is coming to you and rejoice in this. He's coming. You Jewish people need to know he's coming. You ladies break out in song is what he's saying. Your king is coming to you. Now, the rest of the prophecy of Zechariah there awaits a future fulfillment. And uh, we look for a literal fulfillment. How should we interpret prophecy in the Old Testament? And the answer is we should interpret it literally. How do we know that? Because the prophecy that was already fulfilled was fulfilled literally. Now, the prophetic import of this day goes even deeper than Zechariah. And I told you to keep your finger in Matthew 21, but you're going to need another finger now because I want you to turn to the prophet Daniel. Go back a few more books to the prophet Daniel, to the portion of Scripture we read for our Scripture reading today, and that is also Daniel 9, Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel 9, Daniel the prophet in exile in Babylon has read in the prophecy of the prophet Jeremiah that Israel was only to be in exile for 70 years, 70 years. And the time of the end of that punishment was coming to a close. And so Daniel knew this is the right time to confess sin. And boy, did he confess sin there. And he's praying to God and he's appealing to his mercy. And as Daniel is praying, Daniel receives yet another vision from the angel Gabriel. And to Daniel is revealed an even more fabulous prophecy 
a detailed prophecy that picks up in verse 24 of chapter 9. If you look at verse 24. And verses 24 through 26, this is complicated, but I want to read it again because the beauty of it is in the details. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people, Gabriel said, and your holy city, that's Jerusalem, right, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. That's a lot of things that are going to be fulfilled. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And then it goes on to speak of the arrival of this, this abominable man, this, uh, this antichrist, this false Christ, this one who stands in the place of Christ. So look at verse 24. It speaks of 70 weeks which are left. That's it. It's going to complete God's dealings with the people of Israel. Daniel's worried about the nation of Israel, and here he gets a prophecy that's going to complete all of God's dealings with the nation of Israel, that is, in this age. The weeks that Gabriel mentions, Shavuah in Hebrew, are literally units of seven. Mostly when it's translated, it's translated weeks. But more accurately, it speaks of units of time in Hebrew, not necessarily seven days. From the context here, it is clear that those units of seven are not weeks, but are years. Seventy units of seven years, making a total of 490 years. But only 62 plus seven of those weeks, making a total of 69 sevens, would occur before the Messiah, Prince Messiah, would arrive in the holy city and then be what is described as cut off. What does cut off mean? It means he's going to be cut off from his inheritance at that time, cut off from his life. In other words, he would be killed. The starting point of that time is specific. It is the decree to rebuild, not the temple in Jerusalem, but the decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem itself. The ending point is the arrival of Messiah the Prince when he would be cut off at his death. That makes a total of 483 years exactly in between those two. The last seven years, the last week is reserved for something else in the future. And we're not given how much time would be between the 69th and the 70th week. But it's set apart for one last thing that God will do. There will be a seven-year tribulation time that is focused on what God is doing to restore the nation of Israel to its prominence in the world. When God will again directly deal with a disobedient nation to bring it in conformity with faith and obedience to Messiah the Prince. Those seven years, as short as they are, will be critical for the future history of the entire world. And they will fulfill prophecy. Now, there are a couple of different ways that the prophecy here in Daniel 9 has been calculated by by people who get into great detail and trying to figure out this prophecy. And it depends on which ancient calendars are being followed and which calendars were more accurate. Dr. Harold Honer of Dallas Theological Seminary 
in his excellent little paperback book, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, a great little book to get, works through a tedious amount of detail with this prophecy. He works through ancient calendar systems, and he tries to nail down the exact day that Messiah the Prince, the King, was to arrive in his holy city in Jerusalem. He counts from March the 5th, 444 B.C., the date that Artaxerxes decreed in the 20th year of his reign that Jerusalem was to be rebuilt. Again, not the, not the temple, but the city of Jerusalem was to be rebuilt. And that decree is actually mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verses 1 through 18. So he takes that decree and he carries it all the way through to March the 30th, A.D. 33, Jesus' triumphal entry. He uses a 360-day-a-year calendar rather than the 365 uh, calendar that we use. He gives a, a great rationale for why that would be more likely what Daniel was thinking of and what the angel Gabriel was relating to him. And that totals 173,880 days, the way he calculated it. By our calendars, 476 years, remembering that uh, there is no year zero when you go from B.C. into A.D. as well. But by the ancient calendars, 483 years exactly. Now, that's a lot of detail for you to try to swallow here. I know you can't absorb all of that. But don't miss the overriding point. The Old Testament had an amazing prophecy foretelling the very year and day in which the true Messiah of Israel would be presented to Jerusalem. The Jews had the very time that the Messiah was to ride in, as Zechariah said, on a donkey. And it was all spelled out for them in great detail. Dr. Dwight Pentecost, in his book, The Words and Works of Jesus Christ, makes a good summary. I'll read it for you. Messiah, as the Prince of Peace, came to the appointed day to bring peace to the nation. Christ was identified before the nation as Messiah at his baptism. He was authenticated as Messiah at his temptation. His glory as Messiah was revealed at his transfiguration. But it was at his triumphal entry that Christ made an official presentation of himself as Messiah to the nation. Beautiful statement. Here he was, I am your king. And that's what he was doing. Jesus was fully aware of the import of this day. He knew what he was doing. This thought in Jesus' mind about the exact date of the Messiah. He was always on a clock. He always knew when his day was coming. You find that, that repeating phrase from Christ who would say, it's not yet my hour. He knew the prophecies and he knew when he was to arrive and he, he followed it to a T. But he knew this day in Luke chapter 19, Jesus paused as he got sight of the city and rather than being all jazzed up and excited for all the throngs that would come out to see him, it says he wept. He cried over the city. And he said, if, if you would have known, if you would have recognized the day of your visitation, how great it would have been for you. But he cries and he weeps and he, he speaks of a prophecy when, when the armies will come up against Jerusalem and war against it and destroy it. And he understood. He understood. This was the Jews' day of visitation for centuries. They had waited 
for their king. They're oppressed by Rome. This was their day. This was greater than a July 4th. And they totally missed it. And God knew they would miss it. The way God's prophecies work are amazing. Because God had already prophesied from before the foundation of the world, the Messiah had to be killed. You have him presenting himself as king, and they could have had him as king. But God knew and even orchestrated that they would reject their king because he came to offer his life a sacrifice for the very people that would cry out, crucify him, crucify him. While they had intense ignorance, arrogance, and hatred towards their lowly, lovable, gracious, and generous king, he would go to the cross to die for them and to pay for their sin. We need to understand our king, how lovable he is, how wonderful he is, how glorious he is. This is the Jesus we gather to worship and we go out to serve, to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Isn't it no wonder Jesus said, anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his own life more than me is not worthy of me. He is to be embraced and he is to be loved for his wonderful character. He went to the cross to offer himself a sacrifice to pay for sins. He was the literal king. He is the literal king of the nation of Israel. He is coming again. He is coming back to Israel. He's coming to exalt that nation after the nation has been humbled for 2,000 years. He's coming to, to fulfill all the prophecies, literally. The idea that the church has replaced Israel and there's no future for Israel is just so contrary to so many of the stated facts in Scripture. Jesus is the king of Israel, and he's coming again. He's coming again to reign. He's looking forward to his second presentation. That will be much more joyous, for he'll come back to a believing nation at that time. Now, I want you to come back to Matthew 21. So the disciples did, just as Jesus said, and uh, the arrangements were made, just like Jesus told them. God's providence was working, and it always works in harmony with his will. Providence is working along with the prophecies. You can't stop prophecies from being fulfilled. Nobody can. They can try, Satan tries all the time. He can't, he can't stop it from being fulfilled. It'll be fulfilled just as God says. You can bank on that. It's always in harmony with God's will. And we come to the second scene, and that is the praise for the king. And that starts in the middle of verse 7 and goes uh, through to the end of verse 11 with all the hosannas. And you see what praise Jesus received there. What a claim he got on this very, very special day. I mean, outwardly, this was a very exciting day. It, was, it had an electric atmosphere, I'm sure. If you've ever been around crowds that are all focused on one thing, they're all rooting for one team, they're all excited about one event, it can be an amazing thing. It was a huge day for those involved. Think about the disciples. They'd been following Jesus, and in, in Jesus' hometown, he'd been rejected. He goes to Capernaum. He does the miracles, and the, they still don't repent. He goes to Bethsaida by the, by the shores of the Sea of Galilee, where there are a lot of fishermen there, and presents the miracles. He's still rejected there. I mean, there are a lot of, the leaders have rejected him, and now they're in Jerusalem, the most important city, and everybody is accepting him. And like they're, 
they're pumped. They're ready for this. For the disciples, they probably were like, this is finally some, this is good. This is good. They were confused about all aspects of the kingdom of God. And that this is good. And so he arrives. And there are several manifestations of the honor that Jesus got on that day. Notice first in verse 7 that the disciples laid their coats on the donkey and on the colt so that Jesus could sit on the coats. He did not ride the two animals, by the way. He rode on the colt and then on the coats on the colt. Now, why did they do that for him? Because if an animal were to be ridden by a person of great importance, such as a monarch, and Jesus was a prince, a king, the animal often would be covered with the finest of clothes that were available or even cloaks. This uh, happened when they announced Jehu as king way back in 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 13. The disciples didn't have any fine clothes. They were not rich men. They didn't follow Jesus to get rich. They were just normal guys, you know, fishermen. They were hardworking kind of guys. They were with, with average people. So they took the best they had. They took their cloaks and they, they, they covered Jesus' seat with that just to honor him. The second little indication that uh, Jesus was being honored is at the beginning of verse 8. And that is that the crowd also followed suit and they laid their coats on the ground. That, that little phrase, most of the crowd, I think is a poor translation. I would, I would rather go with uh, the King James and the New International Version. There they say it was a very great crowd, a little difference of an emphasis. The great crowd was doing this, not most of the crowd. It was also an ancient custom to throw coats in the way of a monarch. This gesture was to show their willingness to submit to that monarch. Here he comes, and we're low before you. We're laying these coats down, and this is our best, and please come on into our king. We're ready, ready to serve you and ready to, to worship you. In this case, worship. It was a symbolic way of accepting Jesus as the son of David. And this was an enormous crowd. This was a huge crowd. If not directly in the procession, at least in the surrounding hillsides, an enormous crowd. How big was the crowd, you ask? Well, a census was taken 10 years before this time. That's told by Josephus, the Jewish historian who wrote for the sake of the Romans. And it showed there were 256,000 lambs that were slaughtered at the time of Passover. 256,000 lambs slaughtered. Well, they say one lamb could be sacrificed for as many as 10 people. That means the crowds around Jerusalem during the Passover time could have swelled to as many as 2 million people or more. Remember, the Jews came from all over the world, for this was their greatest feast. They came to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem in remembrance of their delivery from uh, Pharaoh in Egypt. So the hillsides all around Jerusalem were probably covered with people. There were temporary structures that had been built. There were tents that were there. All the lodging places in Jerusalem would have been filled to overflowing. So get the scene. This is not a small event. Third, Jesus was honored by the fact that the crowd also cut down branches from the trees and then they laid those branches also in front of Jesus. It's like they were spreading a royal carpet for Jesus as he was to ride over them into their city. In Mark eleven eight, it adds that others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Others were cutting palm branches from the palm trees around there, according to John chapter 12 and verse 13. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. And then fourth, another indication of the honor for Jesus. It says the crowd came and surrounded him before him and then behind him. It's like they were forming an advance guard and a rear guard, an entourage to just bring him into the city by massive people, everyone wanting to be close to him as he's coming in. You know, everyone wants to be near a celebrity. It was that kind of a thing. 
He's riding in. He's coming into rain. And there's the crowd getting close and, and wanting to be part of the whole event and feel the excitement. And then fifth, most significant of all, the one we may remember the most, that is that they were singing and shouting praises to Jesus. They were yelling, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke and Mark record similar expressions. Mark eleven ten. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You see what they were thinking. They were recognizing Jesus' coming as the coming of the Messiah. They were hailing him as the one who would bring the kingdom of their ancient father, David. And so they cried, Hosanna, Hosanna. That is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew, Hosanna. It's a cry that basically means save now, save now. And it kind of has an urgent note to it, and it's like a wish or a prayer Oh, save us now, is sort of the sentiment of it. And when it's Hosanna in the highest, it just even heightens the statement more. Save us now. Do this. Actually, it's wording that comes from Psalm 118 and Psalm 117. In Psalm 118, verses 24 and 25, it says, This is the day which the Lord has made. You see what day he's talking about? This is the day that the Lord has made. This triumphant day, you see? Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Listen, the expectations of the Messiah in Israel at this time were very, very high. The place was probably near a frenzy. You have all these really bad movies and their reenactments, and it always gets me upset. Never watch a biblical movie with me. Never. Don't do it. They have a couple of hundred politely waving their little palm branches. I'm like, it's like it's a little town, a little town parade. No, this place was roaring. It was big. They have money in Hollywood. They should make it bigger. The place was mobbed. The people were throwing their coats in front of him. They were climbing trees to chop down branches. They were maneuvering to get their spot. They were forming an entourage around him. They were hailing him as a messianic deliverer. They were under the oppression of Rome. This place was jazzed. But as great as it was, Jesus was not moved. They didn't understand him. They didn't understand his mission. Of course, they were excited. A miracle-working Messiah, prophet. They couldn't make up their minds about that either. Prophet, Messiah. He was there. Rome was conquered, had conquered them. They'd been under the oppression of Rome for many, many decades. They hated Rome. And here was maybe the guy that could finally fix the situation. It's Passover. Look what God had done to Pharaoh with all of the plagues. Now Jesus is here. I mean, look what God might do to Rome. They were hailing a deliverer. Yes, they were. One to save their nation from domination, not depravity. Many Americans are like that too. 
Give us a leader who will save us from, well, we're not dominated yet, but from going that direction. Instead of give us a leader that will cause our people to be humbled and bow before Jesus Christ. The people had no real understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ or his mission to defeat sin and defeat, defeat death. That had to happen before the Messianic millennial visible kingdom came. Some have misunderstood Jesus in another way. They think that Jesus never intended to reign on earth as Israel's king. That's not true either. He came to take care of the sins of his people and the power of death over his people first. That had to be done first. He had to deal with the spiritual qualifications of the nation first before they could have the blessings of the nation. That's not a new thought. That was all over the Old Testament. That was even part of their covenant with Moses. If you obey, I will open the windows of heaven and bless your nation. If you disobey, I'll make you the worst nation in the world. I'll curse you. You carry my name, you better carry it with high regard. And when they did, he made them a great nation. And when they did, he made them an abject poverty. They made them a byword. He sent them out into all of the nations of the world. He scattered them, ripped them off their land, made them hated by the other nations. There's still hatred of the Jews today. But he's going to come back. And when he comes back, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will bring the physical blessings. Listen, look at your own salvation to understand this. Your soul is saved now, I hope. I pray that you've, you've repented of your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saved right now. You're already justified. You're already reconciled to God. That's past tense. That's happened to you. You're saved. Your spiritual salvation has come to you. Is your body raised from the dead? Excuse me. Is your body raised from the dead? The eldest people in here should be shouting the loudest. No, it is not raised from the dead. Is God concerned with the physical of your body? Yes. Is the physical somehow unimportant? No. God came to save your soul first, but not only your soul. He he came to to take care of Israel's sin first, but he's going to give them the physical blessings. That's what the prophecies say. It's so plain. Israel would not get its physical glory until it obeyed her Lord. And that will happen in the end times when even Romans 11 says there'll be a a mass conversion of ethnic Jews right in the end times, particularly during that seven-year tribulation time. The Jews wanted physical deliverance and wealth and prosperity and health and everything to boost their pride without repenting of sin. Does that sound familiar? That's what Americans want to. They want a ruler like that. That's why they don't like Jesus. No, no, no. That's why they change Jesus to be an entirely different Jesus and then worship him. Health, wealth, name it, claim it, self-esteem, positive feeling, confidence for success in life now, your business will grow. Jesus, tolerant of sexual perversion, live any way you want, he loves you. A Jesus to use to demand civil rights. A Jesus to pray for sports victories. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not a Jesus who sees the ugliness of our personal thoughts and our actions and warns us the wrath of God is coming. Repent now. Receive forgiveness now. Why wait until you die? One fool once told me, I'll wait until after I die before I come to Jesus and see if it's all true. Jesus Christ will not bless any nation or any person in their sin. You got to get out of the sin if you want blessing. He's a holy God. I love what the Lord Jesus had said just before this in Matthew 18. He said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to become like a child and say, I don't understand everything, but I trust you. Heavenly Father, I trust you. Here I am. You want to know Jesus' true feelings on this grand day? John 12, 27. Now my soul has become troubled. He said this on this day. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. He knew. He knew that he came to give his life a ransom for many. He knew it was the hour of his passion and his death. He knew the glory of his earthly reign was off in the future. John MacArthur says, as far as the true intent of the people were concerned, Jesus' coronation was a hollow, empty pretense. The words of the multitude were right, but their hearts were not. In any case, he had not come at that time to be crowned, but to be crucified. He got a crown, all right. It was a crown of thorns. Well, last and real quickly, verses 10 and 11, the puzzlement over the king. It says there in verses 10 and 11, the whole city was stirred. That literally means was shaken. This was an event that shook the entire city. It is the root word for an earthquake, by the way. The size of the commotion. Everyone in the whole city wanted to know what is happening. Who is so audacious as to receive the crowd's affirmation as the son of David? Who is this? This is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth. Everyone had heard of him. Back at chapter 16, Jesus turned to his disciples when they came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, and he said, who do the people say I am? And every one of their answers were, he was a prophet. You're John the Baptist raised from the dead. You're Elijah. You're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Not good enough. Not a prophet. Peter gave his confession. Thou art the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's what brought Jesus' blessing. The crowd was hailing him as a Messiah. Most still thought of him as a prophet. Mixed opinion, confusion. The full import that this was God in human flesh, they certainly didn't know. They missed what was happening. They didn't understand. They were confused. They didn't know the word of God as well. It's a danger to be around the word of God and think that you are the guardians of the Bible and think that you know more than other people and you don't study it and don't understand it. There's a danger in that. That's what happened to the Jews. They were the Bible teachers of the world and they missed it. 
Only those who know Christ as Christ crucified for their sins will be able to rejoice with Christ when he comes in his glorious kingdom. It is at that time every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord to the glory of God the Father. S. Lewis Johnson in the book Vital Christological Issues writes, All is not lost. The future holds a glorious hope. The day is coming, as Jesus himself suggested a few days later, when Israel, in full understanding, will shout the acclamation again as they see him coming the second time for deliverance. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The first time they said it, they didn't get it. The second time, they're going to say it, and they'll get it then. You read Isaiah chapter 53, the great prophecy of the crucifixion of the Messiah, and you read it, he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. What is that? That is the confession of the nation of Israel after they finally understand they killed their Messiah. That is not looking forward. That is the Jews in the end time looking back and realizing 2,000 years ago, we killed our Messiah. That's their confession of faith. That's their, that's their confession of sin that they had. That's when Christ is going to come back. That's when he's going to reign. That's what Revelation 19 and verse 11 is about when it says, I saw heaven open and behold, not a white donkey, but a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges. And this time it says he comes to wage war. And it goes on and it says his robe and on his thigh it has a name written, King of all the kings and Lord of all the lords, right? That will be his next coming to Jerusalem. He will ride a war horse and he will reign 1,000 years on earth. That is what Jesus said on the Mount of Olives just a few days later before he died on Friday. He said this in Matthew 25, 31, what's called the Olivet Discourse, where he describes his second coming. He says, when the Son of Man comes, that's the title he uses for himself, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will judge them. Our Jesus... Our king, the king of Israel, my king, your king, yes? What a great and a glorious day that will be. I hope we can join together and with meaning and understanding say, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. I've asked, I've asked uh, Doug if you come back up here and we'll sing a song about this very day just to conclude our worship of him.